Hi, everyone. Welcome to Millennium Live, a digital diary podcast. We sit down with the top C-suite executives and talk all things digital transformation. We had the pleasure to have one of Millennium's academics join us in our New York studio. Clarence Lee is an assistant professor of marketing at the Johnson Graduate School of Management at Cornell University. Clarence's research involves digital marketing and customer analytics applications across various industries. We had the time to chat about the changing role of the CMO, adoption to technologies such as AI, and bridging the gap between industry and academia. Hi, everyone. I am here today in our New York office of Millennium Alliance. I am joined by Clarence Lee. He is the Assistant Professor of Marketing at Johnson Graduate School of Management at Cornell. Thanks so much for being here, Clarence. Thank you for having me, Cara. So we're, we're so excited you're here. You'll be attending our upcoming program. And you were also at one of our previous programs. But before we get into any of that, I want to hear a bit more about your background and, and how you got started in this world of marketing. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so uh, I actually was a computer science major uh, at MIT and um, loved AI, studied AI and machine learning uh, back then. And I had met this gentleman that kind of changed the course of my my life. Uh, and his name is uh, Professor Glenn Urban. He's retired now, but he was the former dean of MIT Sloan. And he uh, also is a marketing professor. He was on the faculty there. Super, super humble, super, super awesome guy. I had the privilege of working with him. And what they were trying to do was build, he wanted a team of engineers that could build a website that could change his look and feel Mm -hmm. based on its inference of the customer's cognitive styles. So essentially, there's an ad tech engine at the the end of that, that he wanted us to build. Fell in love with the math, fell in love with the idea. I think that's an idea that is really powerful and could be used to change education. And so I thought, oh, let's go take this route and learn as much as with it as I can. So led the team. We built it. Loved working with him. And I said, Glenn, I want to be like you. <laughs> what do I have to do? <laughs> and he said, well, you got to get a PhD. So long story short, I was fortunate enough to um, go down the river to Harvard Business School and um, study with uh, my advisor who built the digital marketing program there. Wow. And so um, uh, Suni, Professor Sunil Gupta, he's great. And then so after that, um, I was fortunate enough to get a job at Cornell. And in my dissertation, I had studied how startups growth hack to become unicorns. Ah. So I got a taste of seeing how Silicon Valley uses growth and essentially marketing to uh, acquire and retain their customers. And then after I graduated, I had a chance. I, uh, you know, I was privileged enough to, uh, to get a job at Cornell. And so since then, I've been thinking about how to use my background in machine learning and AI and statistics to solve problems that marketers from folks that are at the very junior level to also to the C-suite, the challenges that they're tackling with right now, especially the changing climate and things like that um, and regulations. Uh, So that's, yeah, it's, it's it's been a fun ride so far. That's great. Two worlds that definitely need to come together. <laughs> so how do you think the brands that you work with benefit from a deeper understanding of customer analytics as opposed to brands that really don't have this understanding? Yeah, absolutely. So I think one thing I'm observing right now from industry is that there is a strong desire to do data-driven decision-making. And specifically, when you apply those decision-making to marketing per se, this essentially ends up being something that's called performance marketing nowadays. Mm-hmm. So what are the marketing spend across the different channels and levers that we can pull up and down? And then how is that going to be attributed to sales, mm. for instance, your KPIs? Sure. And if you were to add this idea of agile on top of that, then that's what you get. Um, that's what performance marketing is. Right. And one of the things that if you look 
at the broader trend over the last decade, the reason why concepts like agile have creeped into the world of marketing is the fact that um, because digital marketing allows marketers to track and be able to put a number on the effectiveness of each of these digital marketing levers on some sort of KPI. Mm-hmm. And digital marketing gets can get deployed in such a short amount of time. Some of the same things that we had seen, that I had seen in this, you know, the startup world more than a decade ago, in which you see how product managers are using principles from the lean startup and agile to build, test, and uh, measure, and uh, basically learn from that loop for their product. It's the same principles are being applied in the data science mm-hmm. world to apply to digital advertisements and um, ways to reach your consumers. Sure. So as a result of that, I'm seeing a lot of firms across all industries, CPG, healthcare, tech, you know, um, all, the, all these different verticals, they are finding the need to, in order to keep up and outpace the competitors, they need to be very smart about their decision-making and specifically marketing spend. So I see some of these same principles that are cutting across verticals are now mm-hmm. being applied to marketing per se. And so that, when I was at a conference yesterday, hosted by the ANA, um, this was one of the, the biggest topics that uh, all really? the, the marketers are talking about there. Mm-hmm. And on that note, obviously, digital transformation is at the forefront right now. And here at the Millennium Alliance, we encounter a lot of executives that are looking for newer ways to bring that in. And I know you're doing some work on that now. So what advice do you give to them on how to even achieve this? A couple things. It starts with the people and the talent. Mm-hmm. And so one thing I'm observing from industry right now is that a lot of marketers are trying to recruit talent from areas that previously they haven't had a chance to recruit as much. STEM majors, for mm-hmm. instance, uh, you got the computer science person who knows how to code. You got the stats majors and insurance majors that knows how to uh, wrestle with uncertainty and statistics. And so I see a strong desire for folks to recruit the quants in the mm-hmm. field, much like how the finance field have been doing that in the last two decades. And we have also the creatives uh, that are on the qualitative side of the house that are, you know, great at communicating with people and creating stories and all that. And there's a huge gap between the storytellers and the folks who would basically help enable this data-driven decision-making. I think building a team that allows you to leverage both is key. And what I see quite a bit is people are trying to hunt for these unicorns, these people that could do both. And I think it's really difficult hmm. uh, for for a human being to be trained to be so good at both at the left brain and the right brain. Right. And uh, and so that's the first thing uh, that I, w- I would say assemble a team as opposed to trying to hunt for the one or two unicorns that are out there because it's a very hard problem. And once you have the people that you want to hire and you have a pipeline to set that up, you also want to think about not just whom you want to hire, but what kind of environment do you want to create so that they can work in and they can thrive in? Okay. And so let's say you are able to hire both these quants and creatives, mm-hmm. these poets. Mm-hmm. You want to have an environment where when they come, they could feel empowered and they could flourish. One professor that I had the privilege of encountering during my grad school is uh, the late uh, Clayton Christensen. Mm-hmm. And one of the ideas that he said that really left a mark on my mind is that he said one of the, the, the cool things about management as a profession is that as a leader, you can create a culture and an environment where people could either thrive in or maybe not thrive in. Mm-hmm. And he, he had these two uh, very vivid pictures that he think about when he was a uh, junior in his, uh, his career. He says that imagine today your direct employee, um, 
you know, uh, he or she comes to work for eight hours in the day. And imagine if you create a workplace and culture where, you know, she is not, or he's not feeling utilized. He's not, you're not taking the time to understand the person's, their goals and what they like to learn. Um, how can they be using their talents, for instance? Um, at the end of the day, at the end of that eight hours uh, or nine hours, um, they're going to go home. They're going to feel underappreciated. They're going to feel underutilized. They're going to feel frustrated. And all that negativity and the venom that builds up, it's not just going to stay with them. It, it could potentially go back to influence the way that he's going to treat his kids or, right. you know, when he see his spouse, like they, these are all things that can spill over. Mm-hmm. And imagine the opposite, the opposite where you create an environment where humans and your employees could flourish. They can really get to leverage the things that their, their interests, seeing uh, and learn, tackle hard, challenging problems that can, that can challenge them to grow mm-hmm. and having a, a leader that could appreciate them. That picture at the end of the day, when they go home, feeling appreciated, feeling they're, they're growing, feeling that there is hope in their career trajectory. That's a much more enlightening and just a, a more empowering uh, environment. Mm-hmm. And so uh, he has tried to encourage his, uh, the executives that he come into contact with to try to shape more of the latter and create an environment that's like that. So in the same vein, um, if you think about creating a data-driven organization, not just within marketing per se, this is a challenging task. It's challenging and it's it's hard to do, but what it does is if you could do it right, once the flywheel kicks gets going, it puts distance between you and your competitors and it becomes a part of your competitive advantage. And I think um, my final advice is that there's actually four stages of, uh, of transformation that I've seen for companies across all verticals that um, they go through to think about as they were trying to create the culture for a data-driven decision-making company. Mm-hmm. Long story short, the, the, four, the four phases, is, uh, it goes like the, as follows. The first phase is something called the data phase. This is something that a lot of company has been um, trying to do for the last decade and a half. Essentially, the whole idea is getting all your data in the same place. Okay. So having things like CRM, your CDPs, and getting your data lakes and all that, and having the data dashboard. Mm-hmm. Imagine this like having your car built and having a dashboard install. The data is like the fuel. It allows you to go to places that you like to. And the car could tell you, the dashboard itself, your speedometer tells you how fast you're going. But what it doesn't tell you, though, is where can you go? You have to decide that. How do you get there? That leads to the second phase, which is the analysis phase. And this is, again, another phase that a lot of companies have been going through uh, for the last uh, decade as well, where they're hiring data scientists. They are hiring data engineers, data products, and all that. And in that phase, it's like having a GPS in your car. Hmm. You know you want to get from Midtown to Upper West Side, for instance. And um, there are multiple routes to get there. Now, you want to take into account, if your GPS is smart, it could take into traffic conditions, it could optimize the routes, it could basically avoid potential construction and things like that. Much in the same way, having these data scientists, having all this analysis, it allows you to have the promise of that. But still, many companies are falling short. Why is that? Um, the reason is because this gets to the third phase called the insights phase. Most companies, once they get to this phase, they re- uh, what they realize is that they're actually not driving a car. 
they're actually more like flying a fighter jet. Oh boy! <laughs> so, so so imagine back in Top Gun, yeah. <laughs> you know when it came out, you got you know those F-16s, right? It's yep. it's avionics, all this fancy you know, navigational things uh, that the equipment that's in the jet. You're, it's nimble, it's fearsome, but it takes two people to tango Yikes. in this. You got yeah. Maverick, Tom Cruise, at the helm of the fighter jet, and they're controlling. He's controlling where do we go, how fast do we go, and all that. But then you also have Goose. He is the he's the person that basically provides the uh, the data essentially uh, how to navigate and cut through the air in the right way. We got bogeys on our, we got bogeys on our six. How do we actually navigate around mm-hmm. that? And so this coordination between Maverick and Goose essentially is what happens in data driven organizations mm-hmm. nowadays. The the Gooses of the world are the data scientists. These are the folks that come up with the data analysis and all that. And the the Mavericks of the world. These are the folks who are the business decision owners, right? The brand managers mm-hmm. that have the control of the spend of the budget and how what they should do with all that money. The challenge is what oftentimes companies find is when a when data scientists when their their brain has been in the weeds and it and and they've been in these rabbit holes and they need to do that in order to do a good job on all this. Right. When they resurface and say, "Hey, I found these ten cool things in terms of correlations and plots." Oftentimes, they haven't been thinking about the so what question. These are the 10 findings that you have found. How does that actually relate to my business? Mm-hmm. And that's what the business owners actually care about. That's what the brand manager cares about. It's like, well, this is great, but how this has informed my decisions? What are the insights that I need to make these uh, data-driven decisions so that I can then go and tell my agencies how to actually execute the decisions? Sure. So that gap is a huge, huge gap that I think Many companies are realizing now, mm-hmm. and they're trying to basically build around that. So this communication between the two sides of the house, that's something that I see uh, every company is facing right, right now. That's the third phase. Now, there's actually a fourth and final phase called the Proteus phase. Okay. Uh, I'm going to borrow this idea from this, this great book uh, by General Stanley McChrystal. It's called Team of Teams. And the idea is this. Once you, are, once you master the insights phase, once you are able to fly this fighter jet, there's another rude awakening. Of course. And that is, <laughs> you're actually not flying a fighter jet. You're flying the Starship Enterprise. Oh, oh. <laughs> it's, a, it's a large <laughs> ship. And it requires not just two people to pilot it, but rather an entire crew. And so this communication I just talked about between Maverick and Goose, it gets multiplied tenfold, a hundredfold. If you're a large mm. CPG company where you have tons and tons of people who are trying to do that. Now you have essentially teams of Mavic and Goose out there that are, you know, in charge of the decisions across different products, mm-hmm. different different channels. How do they coordinate? How do they, on top of that also, how do you respond to shocks and changes that are in the environment? You might have startups who are trying to take your money, who are trying to go up against you. These you know, up and coming or these uh, these DTCs, yeah, these direct-to-consumer brands that has been popping up over the last five years oh, yeah. and caught a lot of attention and been acquired by these big companies. They're coming after you. And so how do you respond to threats like that dynamically? It's so coordinated across all that to be able to make decisions, data-driven decision-making fluidly. That's the essentially the idea of the Proteus phase. Sure. So being able to build a mesh network that allows the, both the communication Uh, of these insights across all of the different teams so they can operate as one unit. But at the same time, having the distributed decision-making 
structure so that each of the teams could basically make the decisions and the data themselves on the ground and still bring alignment to the organization. Sure. That's not an easy thing to do. But once you craft that code, it's such a huge competitive Smooth advantage. Sailing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you you touched a little bit um, before on on hiring and you know it's a very hot topic right now the CMO and it's changing role it's maybe disappearing role I, yeah. I I'm curious to hear your opinions on this is this a good thing that what's happening <laughs> with this role Yeah um, I whether it's good or not I don't know I think I don't claim to have the knowledge uh, nor the hubris to say hey this is what it should be this is something I love to to check with my guest speaker next week actually I have fortunate enough that we're able to uh, book a time with. Uh, the CMO of MasterCard, uh, Raja Rajmanar, and he's uh, gracious enough to come out to, to Cornell, Cornell next uh, Monday to come speak in my class about some of these issues exactly like this. But from what I know in terms of the background research that my team have done is that CMO uh, is one of the, the C-suite roles that have the, perhaps the, the shortest, I guess, tenure or lifetime. Mm. Um, and so that's happening, I think, because of, on things on multiple fronts. Uh, one thing is this data-driven decision-making that is happening right now. And perhaps the CFO and then the other the uh, the other C-suite folks uh, in operations and stuff like that, that data-driven decision-making and being able to do uh, agile, they've had to do that mm-hmm. for uh, perhaps much longer than we have. Uh, and so that's one background change that I've seen mm-hmm. in an industry that may or may not be affecting this. Another key thing, Another thing, too, is this idea of alignment within the C-suite itself. Mm-hmm. So if you think about you're at the CEO, you probably have a dashboard yourself mm-hmm. and the KPIs that you look at that you need to basically report to to the board as well as the shareholders, especially if the company were public. So all those metrics out there that are uh, aligning your top line and your bottom line to your, your stock price, uh, that's what you care about day in, day out. But at the end of the day, the marketing world also, there may or may not be the same metrics. So if there's not the same metrics that the CEO cares about, one of the things that the CMO need to, needs to do is to have get some sort of KPI that is on the CEO's dashboard that can basically be aligned and bring accountability to everything that the CMO would do downstream. That alignment, even though it's a simple idea, it's, uh, it's something that actually takes a lot of effort to do. Mm-hmm. And so there are folks in academia now that are trying to uh, help with that, bringing that alignment. Um, mm. I'm just going to call them out to, to academics that are <laughs> doing shout out. Uh, these <laughs> ideas. Uh, one is Professor Dan McCarthy from Emory, yeah. and they are doing customer-based uh, corporate valuation in the sense that this idea of bringing alignment between customer lifetime value and concepts of customer lifetime value uh, with uh, that two uh, top-line and bottom-line metrics that can be, basically be linked back to the, the stock market. Um, that's something that exciting works like like folks like Dan, as well as Pete Fader from Wharton, yeah. Eric Rallo from Wharton, uh, as well as Sunil Gupta from HBS. Mm-hmm. These are exciting things that uh, what we're trying to do in academia to, sure. to help the CMOs to bring alignment to them. Yeah. So we'll just wait and see what happens then. Yeah. <laughs> it's a waiting <laughs> so, game. Yeah. So AI, big buzzword. I know it's your sweet spot as well. Have you seen certain companies struggling with how to put that into their marketing tactics or have, have, is there pushback? Yeah, absolutely. I think I think uh, if you look at the history of AI, there's been winters, AI winters, uh, and the reason of the winters are because of people overpromising the promises of AI and underdelivering mm-hmm. the value of AI. Even the AI idea itself, when you talk to ten people, you might get a lot of different ideas of what it is. Yep. 
So let me just define the scope for AI, like what I've seen for marketers. So if you think about AI, I'm going to throw out robotics. Um, okay. I'm not going to think about that. that yep. uh, I'm going to talk about specifically these concepts called supervised learning, unsupervised learning, and reinforcement learning. Sure. And if you were to take a standard machine learning class, that's what they, te- they would teach you. Essentially, algorithms on how to think about today. Um, what are ways in which we, we can do things that we would do as humans, um, as marketers, let's say, mm. um, and we can we do it better with uh, with machines, or maybe have human in the loop so that machines can augment the marketers and their abilities. Mm. Okay, so that's how I want to set up as a level set. You know, that's when I say AI, that's what I mean. Okay. So what does that mean? So if you think about it, at the end of the day, what marketers care about are levers that they have under their control. Pricing, promotion, what do I spend on different marketing mm-hmm. channels? Uh, who do I distribute with? As well as what is the type of content that we want to distribute as ads to our or products to our consumers? And the there's the levers. That's the, uh, the set of things that you care about in terms of you have control over. And there are things that are uh, outcomes, KPIs that you want to track uh, that you know would basically be aligned way back up to your CMO as well as to the CEO. So things like sales, things like customer lifetime value, for instance. What you care about at the end of the day is uh, how do I actually move up and down those levers so that I could drive the KPIs sure. uh, make that uh, in, and increase that. So the entire advertising ecosystem is built to support that. How do we be smarter and how do we make data-driven decision-makings to move up and down those levers? Mm-hmm. Now, here's where some of the challenges are. One way to use AI in this would be to use uh, essentially supervised, very simple supervised learning methods to help you understand Today, what is the elasticity, the response rate of those levers? And marketers have done that for the last two decades. It's something called marketing mix modeling or media mix modeling, which at the end of the day is just a regression. And the moment you want to layer advanced machine learning techniques on top of that, all you're doing is basically saying, hey, we're going to have a souped up regression powered by deep learning, uh, you know, convolutional neurons and things like that, that essentially allow you to have a very flexible way of figuring out the effects of these levers and the outcomes. That's it. No more, no less. That's a very tactical way and people could do that. Mm-hmm. But because of the language, people get stumped over that. They're just like, oh, what is the difference between AI and this regression that we've been doing? Sure. It's, a, it's a much more precise and much better prediction accuracy of if I were to spend $100 million on these different levers, these marketing channels, uh, what's the uptick, incremental mm-hmm. uptick on our sales? Better precision. So that's supervised learning. There's things, ideas like unsupervised learning and reinforcement learning that allows the machine to help you have the feedback loop on how to do that better. So for instance, today, let's say you run an A-B test. You have running ads on Facebook versus Google, and you realize that you know Facebook is uh, performing not as well as Google because Google is better at bottom of the funnel uh, attribution. And then you run this A-B test, and you realize that. Great. What do you do next? Well, in Agile, you're going to run a whole bunch of other A-B tests. And so how do you decide what channels to try next? Uh, what experiments do you design? How many people do you collect and all that? Well, did you know that there is companies out there and technologies out there that allows you to basically use the information you have from the previous experiment to do a feedback, to reinforce the learning that you have, mm-hmm. to design your next experiment? Hence, these uh, algorithms called multi-arm bandits, contextual bandits, and things like that, that um, our bread and butter that falls within reinforcement learning. Mm. Algorithms that's ex- existed for decades. We use these algorithms to fight the Nazis back in the World War. But now, because of GPUs as well as deep learning, we finally, for the first time in human history, can deploy these things at scale. Now, that's hard to do. And I see a lot of my computer science colleagues uh, are doing this on novel problems. 
um, not just within marketing. Mm -hmm. But I think it's going to take a little bit more time for marketers to ingest this and find the right slice of application for marketers. Mm -hmm. And that's going to take time. Sure. The final thing there is unsupervised learning. And that's something that's close and near to my heart. It's this idea of how do we use machines without human supervision to, uh, to figure out patterns that are intrinsically in the data. So right. that's very abstract. What do I mean by that? Um, one of the core problems with the advertising ecosystem right now is this idea of privacy. Consumers would like more control of their own data, um, how we're getting rid of the cookie, like what do we do with all that? And so if you actually trace down to the roots of, you think about what marketers wanna do. Like I said, levers and outcomes, marketing mix models, A-B tests. At the end of the day, what they really care about is not really the data, but rather what they care about is those measurements of elasticities, those coefficients from the regressions that you would get. Mm. What if I were to tell you that you can get those regressions coefficients without needing the actual data? That's thinking for a minute. The moment you realize that, the moment you realize then is that the way that maybe we're practicing data science up to this point, maybe it's time for a seismic shift. It's much akin to the old days of oil. People all keep on talking about data as the new oil, right? Yep. <laughs> and, and so I would actually go further to say the way we're using raw data right now, it's akin to the crude oil of the old days mm -hmm. before the refineries were invented. Once the refiners were invented, you know, the crude oils itself, uh, it's much like raw data. It's got gunk in it. It's sticky. It's hard to transport. It's, you know, you put that in a car, it's going to sputter. But the moment you put it in a refinery, you can then have all kinds of different grades of oil. You can have kerosene, you can have gasoline, you can have rocket fuel that could take mm -hmm. us to the moon. But it really, having this degree of being able to, to amp up, amp down the degree of the power of the oil it's something that I think in the next five to 10 years that might happen, same thing to the data science industry. And it comes from this realization that what we care about at the end of the day as business decision makers is not the data itself, but rather it's the insights that come out of that. So if there is a way to get to those insights without needing the crude oil, the crude or the raw data, then we can allow a potential for the possibility where imagine a world where we can run all this and design all this uh, personalized content, personalized products for consumers without needing to violate their privacy, okay? And the way to do that is through this, this paradigm called the data-free transfer paradigm. What do I mean by that? I said one of the, the, the premise of these refineries is that you can refine, essentially refine oil from the crude oil. Much in the same way, once you realize that insights can be generated from the results of these models, these regression models, these deep learning models and things like that, you can then think about, gee, if we trace back a step further from that to the, to the root of the data, there is the anal analytics phase where you're training these algorithms. But before that, there is what do you do with the data and the transfer of the data? Now, the data itself from people, that's generated by some rules in society or by, by some laws and like physics, you know, like, so if I were to roll this pen down this table to you, F equals MA would govern that pen, right. how fast it could go, where it's going to end and all that. I could predict where that ball is going to go or that pen is going to roll and essentially predict its behavior. Much in the same way, data is allowing us to predict customers in the same way. Mm. But if you know those rules about how customers are going to behave, that F equals MA for customers, essentially the data generating process for the customer, then you wouldn't, you don't need the data. Mm. Okay. And so I talked about this idea of data free transfer paradigm. There's three ways to do it. I'm doing research on that right now and many other 
folks who are way smarter than I am are also doing research mm-hmm. on that. The f- there's three ways to do that. The first way to do this is through something called synthetic data. This idea is not new. It's been around in the, the statistics literature for many decades. And that idea is to say, can we spin up a privacy-preserving clone of the original data and then pass the privacy-preserving clone of that data downstream to the marketers so they can run these regressions on that? And the trick is to do this in such, in such a way where those regression coefficients would be almost the same as if you had the real data. Mm. So that's the accuracy part. On the other side, can you spin up these clones so that if, we, if today this data were hacked and you wanted to identify the original customers, the probability that you can do that is minimized. Mm. And so um, hence the privacy protection. Okay, so that's the first idea. This, the, the second idea is this idea called the model transfer. What does I mean by that? Um, so I said earlier the F, uh, F equals MA. Mm-hmm. That governs the uh, the data generating process of uh, the the customer itself. If you ha- can have access to their customer data, let's say, and you can s- understand what are the forces that would basically drive them to purchase, and you could essentially crack the data generating process, a set of equations for this, then you can instead of passing data around, you can pass that model around, and then that's a much lighter way of passing things around. Mm-hmm. And so that's what I do right now. I'm using these unsupervised learning, machine learning techniques um, to essentially, instead of using the human to figure out what that data generating process is, I'm using AI itself mm. to figure out what those F equals MA, those rules are, and then pass the code to the people that need to use it so that we're not even passing real data around at all. The f- third and final way of doing data-free transfer, uh, tran- uh, transfer is this idea called federated learning. Pioneered by some folks at Google. Mm. Uh, and this idea is not new. It's been around for a couple of years. But the idea is this. Instead of bringing the data to the regression models downstream, can we reverse direction? Can we train these regression models directly on your phone, for instance, mm. so that your phone as the consumer keeps the data and you own all that data and it sits with you? But instead, what gets passed to Google, what gets passed up to Facebook and all these other companies is the weights themselves. And all what and what makes this works is there are ways in which you can gather the distributed train coefficients of these models back up to a master model so that it's as if you had trained this master model mm. with all the data in one place. Wow. So what this allows you to do is to say, hey, consumers, keep your real data. We don't want it. Keep your privacy. But if you want to have personalized ads or personalized products, we can use these data-free transfer techniques to still provide the personalization that you have grown accustomed mm. to. And so you can have your cake and eat it too. We want to respect your privacy. And uh, the reason why I'm so passionate about this is because I think as an academic, um, I want to make, uh, I want to get to a world where uh, consumers could have their privacy, but at the, t- at the same time, companies could still build products that are personalized and can improve upon their products with user data without needing the real data itself. I think that's one potential possibility where we get to a better world than right. the state of the world we are right now. Well, it's an exciting time and the work that you're doing is extremely relevant, clearly. So it's exciting. <laughs> <laughs> so my final question for you um, at Millennium Alliance, obviously one of the things we really strive for is bridging that gap between academia and business. And so I want to hear your thoughts on this. You've seen at one of our events before. Yeah. What What are the benefits? What What did you gain from from coming to our event and bridging that gap? Absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. So my advisors from my undergrad and, and my my doctoral years always told me, Clarence, your research, your source of idea for research, it has to be balanced with rigor and relevance. 
And so we're academics, we're training all these methods, but the people that actually know what the pain points are that are practicing these methods on the ground, these are the executives. These are the CMOs uh, to the, the brand manager and the agencies that are on the ground practicing these things. And so they're, I think going to events like this to meet CMOs and CDOs and these folks who are wrestling with these real issues that are on the ground that are dictating jobs, it's, 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 it's huge. It's, mm-hmm. uh, it's a great learning experience. You know, at the last event, for instance, I met just really thoughtful and humble folks like Brian King, for instance, you know, I have uh, Marriott, uh, just in my co- short conversation with them in uh, a day while I was there, just greatly influenced the way I thought about my own research tra- trajectory and what to place uh, priorities on versus not. And, you know, I've gone to other conferences that are, I'm on the board of the Educational Foundation of the mm-hmm. ANA, and I was just speaking at a conference yesterday about data analytics, where we we gathered academics and industry practitioners together to tackle issues exactly like this. Like, what is the disconnect between academia and, uh, and industry? And I, I would say having more events like this and having more opportunity like this, where we get to see firsthand what are the challenges of the practitioners on the ground. Mm. If, we, as if there's a way to scale that, that would be huge to bring more alignment mm-hmm. uh, to the research that we do in the academia and the methodologies that actually gets implemented in practice. Mm. Well, thank you so much. We're so happy to be working with you and uh, we will see you in a couple of weeks at our event in Vegas. <laughs> Thanks th- for coming in, Clarence. Thank you for having me today. That was fun. Thanks so much for tuning in. Make sure to listen and subscribe to our podcast exclusively on iTunes and SoundCloud to get the inside scoop from top execs in the world of digital transformation. 